Welcome to Care to Lead, Your Path to Leadership Success, brought to you by the Vizient Nurse Executives Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Barbara Seymour, Associate Vice President of Member Connections at Vizient, and I am absolutely thrilled to welcome today's guest, Dr. Ernest Grant, President of the American Nurses Association. Dr. Grant is an internationally recognized expert in burn care and fire safety, lending his expertise to civilian and military burn prevention programs. Dr. Grant is the recipient of multiple awards, including most recently the 2021 Civitas Award from the American Academy of Nursing, the 2021 Ronald H. Brown Standards Leadership Award, and is among the 2021 and 2022 50 Most Influential Clinical Executives, as named by Modern Healthcare. Welcome, Dr. Grant. Well, thank you very much, Barbara. It's indeed an honor and pleasure to be with you today, and I look forward to our conversation. And please call me Ernie. Absolutely. Thank you very much. So, Ernie, you've had such a rich story spanning your 30-year nursing career. Tell us about your current role as the president of the ANA and how your career evolved to where it is today. I had no idea that I wanted to be a nurse when I was in high school. As I frequently tell people, my goal at that time was to be an anesthesiologist and drive a 1968 lime green Mercury Cougar with a red interior. (laughs) And for your audience that's listening, if they would Google that car, they will see why I wanted to particularly drive that car. And actually, I'm still looking for one. So if anybody knows of where one is, please let me know. (laughs) But a high school guidance counselor suggested that I look at nursing because I was the youngest of seven kids. My father had died when I was five, so my mother raised seven kids by herself, and there wasn't that many scholarships out there for people of color at that time to be able to go to school. And so upon the advice of the high school guidance counselor, he suggested nursing, and then I could become a nurse anesthetist. And if I still wanted to go into med school, I could work my way through med school as a nurse anesthetist. And then he suggested that I try going to the local community college, which at that time was called a technical institute. So that to tell you how old I am. <laughs> uh, probably about three months into the nursing program, I totally forgot about medical school. I realized that nursing was my calling. And from that day forth, I wanted to be able to do everything that I could for the people that I served. And that, I think, is what drove me into a lifetime of not only going back for my bachelor's degree, master's, and subsequent doctorate, but to also be an advocate not only for patients, but for the profession of nursing as well. And I guess that's sort of what landed me in the seat that I'm in today as president of the American Nurses Association was being able to be a voice for for people who could not perhaps have access to quality care that some people across the country are able to have, and also to try to lift up the profession as far as not only respectability, but also moving it forward so that nurses will have their seat at the table, if you will. I'm very much enjoying serving in this particular role. I love hearing about the personal side of your story. On a personal note for me, I'm the mom of a Marine. And so as a military mom, I'd also like to thank you for your service and sharing your expertise in burn care to our military to help prepare them. I'd love to hear how your experiences in some of our nation's historic events have helped you shape nursing on a national scale. 
Certainly. The first bit of experience was back in 1994. It was, I believe, a Thursday afternoon, and I was charge nurse in our burn unit. I spent about 36 and a half years working at the burn center at UNC Hospitals in Chapel Hill. And at this particular time, I was a charge nurse, and I remember the phone ringing, and there was an excited voice on the other end of the phone saying they'd had a plane crash, and how many beds do you have? And I was trying my best to remain calm, and I said, I'm sorry, could you repeat that again? And he said, <laughs> this is Sergeant so-and-so, we've had a plane crash, how many beds do you have? And I went, oh my gosh. Of course, we were thinking that it was a commercial airliner that had went down at Raleigh-Durham Airport, and it turns out that it was actually a couple of military aircrafts at Fort Bragg in Pope Air Force Base in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Two C-130s had collided, and a number of soldiers were injured in the ball of flames that happened as a result of that. There were soldiers who were getting ready to load into a C-130 to do some parachute jumping. So that was sort of my first encounter there. We admitted 14 very young military guys between the ages of like 18 and 22, all who had sustained the same injuries, which of course they were all life-threatening and none of them survived, but it gave me pride to be able to be there for them at this particular critical time. And it was during that time that we did launch a more stronger relationship with the military and then particularly the folks at Fort Bragg and Pope Air Force Base to teach them about emergency burn care, what needed to be done when a burn happened. And of course, subsequently, another time was when 9-11 had happened and there was a call for more nurses to come up to provide relief for the nurses at the various burn centers within New York that were treating patients from the World Trade Center. Those nurses had worked up to two weeks in a row, 12, 16-hour shifts, and totally exhausted. So that's when we, through the American Burn Association, had implemented what's called the DMAT team or burn disaster team, where we would rotate in and provide care. And it was quite an exciting time because you're dispatched to a hospital. You're given one day's crash course and how that hospital does their documentation, their medications, and things of that sort. And then you're asked to provide care for those patients. So myself and two other colleagues from my burn care facility flew to New York. And this was like within 10 days after 9-11 had happened. And I believe we worked about 12 days straight. I shouldn't say days, it was nights. We did night shifts, which is something new for me at that time, being rotated off of nights. But it was indeed an honor to be able to answer the call of your country and provide care for those individuals. And there were several other nurses from around the country also that had done the same thing. And I did receive an award from President Bush as uh, National Nurse of the Year for the uh, the efforts we'd done there. But again, working with the federal government and et cetera, as far as looking at ways to try to improve burn care and the immediate needs of burn disaster, you know, when something like that happens, putting things in place for that particular incident. And then, of course, shortly after that, as you are aware, the Afghan war started. And one of the things that we began to notice was that burns were the second or third most highest type of incidents that our military personnel were facing. Your audience may remember that we were hearing a lot about these IEDs or explosive devices that would go off in a convoy. What would happen is that a truck would roll over an IED, it would explode. Personnel would be knocked unconscious from the impact of that, and the vehicle would probably catch on fire. And because they were unconscious, obviously, they were not able to escape the burning vehicle. So you not only had someone who had suffered trauma, probably a closed head injury as well, but because they were unable to move, they sustained burn injuries. And that's when we began to notice that the military had a need for further education regarding the emergency care of burns and what needed to 
to be done. So the American Burn Association had a program called Advanced Burn Life Support, pretty much like ACLS, but it focuses on burns. And myself and several other burn nurses from across the country would go to the various military bases and provide training for military troops who were about ready to be deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think probably over, oh my gosh, for probably a good 10, 12 years or so, I would probably average maybe about six to eight courses at various military bases per year around the country. And then also that's for troop deployment. But then we also would go to various military bases as well just to continue to offer those courses. So I frequently was at Fort Bragg at Camp Lejeune here in North Carolina and then several other military bases in and around the Southeast as well. So very, very happy that I had some skills that I could impart that could make a difference in our efforts to make sure that our military personnel were taken care of and also our efforts to try to win the war as well. I love what you said about answering the call, particularly in nursing. And you've been a first in nursing in so many ways, notably as the first man to be elected to the office of president of the ANA. What's the biggest thing you've had to overcome in becoming a leader in nursing? The biggest thing is, of course, having a presence there. And I guess you could say earning the right to be at the table. Nursing is a female-dominated profession. And I remember when I very first went into nursing, some of my female colleagues would tell me, don't let them use you as an orderly, that you are an equal. And those words stick with me even to this very day, even though it was meant in a different context. It is letting my female colleagues know that, yes, I'm a man. Yes, I'm a person of color, but I also deserve to be at the same table as you. We took the same nursing courses, took the same nurse exam, NCLEX exam, although mine wasn't an NCLEX. It was a two days of setting at a convention center in the capital city here in North Carolina, but the same inferences there. Having to prove that you are worthy of the position, having your voice heard and being accepted for who you are, not because of someone perhaps thinking otherwise, but demanding essentially that I deserve to be here because of what I have done, what I've been able to do and what I plan to do. Having sort of an agenda, if you will, to let my female colleagues and nursing in general know that you can be a good leader. You don't have to, in essence, Set on the sidelines and be quiet, but you can use your voice in so many different ways to have your voice heard to address issues that are facing the profession, be that practice issues, be that clinical issues, be that professional issues, and learning each step along the way that as you have success, that people begin to look at you, admire and respect what you're doing and being supportive of the things that you're trying to do as well. The biggest thing it is, yes, getting the approval of my colleagues that I do have the right to be at the table. Ernie, I'd love hearing your story of how you came to where you are in nursing leadership and the profession, but I'd love to hear how do you envision the future of nursing and healthcare? I envision a future where the nursing profession continues to be strong, where we embrace innovation to make our lives easier and therefore being able to spend more time at the bedside that is inclusive and representative of the people that we serve. One of my main agenda or goals, I guess you could say, when I assumed the presidency was to increase the minority presence of nurses because I'm a strong believer that nursing should be reflective of the people that we serve. And when you are on the other side of the bed and you're a minority and perhaps it's your first time ever being hospitalized or maybe your first time even encountering the healthcare 
healthcare system. You can imagine how very confusing and disoriented it can be. And when you have, as I like to say, we in healthcare, we speak these five and $10 words and our patients perhaps may only understand a dollar word. <laughs> so to be able to see someone who looks like you, that you can say, what do they mean when they were talking about this or that? Or as a nurse of color or as a, a male, to be able to go back to that patient and say, did you understand everything they were saying? I'm happy to either get further answers for you or try to answer your questions. You know, put that person at ease. Or if you understand how, if it's your culture, how that culture may view health or health care, that's something that needs to be imparted to the team so that they just don't automatically make these assumptions that you're in vibe with what they are saying and that you're going along with that. I think for a patient to realize that they have certain rights and if you want a second opinion or tell them, slow your roll a little bit. You're doing those $10 words and I'm only understanding $2 words. So bring it down to my level for someone to feel comfortable enough to be able to say that. That's one thing. As far as with the future of nursing and healthcare, since the early days of the pandemic, we at ANA, we worked with numerous stakeholders, members of Congress, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, OSHA, CDC, even our organizational affiliates, other nursing organizations, to talk about some of the challenges that were impacting the nursing profession. And actually, I wrote a letter to Secretary Bussera asking him to declare the shortage that we are experiencing right now a crisis because this is the worst crisis in nursing history for quite some time. And I've been a nurse for almost 42, 43 years. And yes, we have seen nursing shortages, but nothing to this extent. What I would like to see is a future of healthcare where we have addressed this issue that we don't have these periodic shortages that are workforce issues like what we are experiencing right now, that we have recovered from the pandemic and that we have a workforce that's very steady, that's very thriving and ready to embrace whatever the future may bring. I hope that we're able to achieve that soon. We are working on several different avenues to achieve this, but I would hope that the public got the opportunity to see who we are as nurses, what we actually do. And I think we have an increased pipeline of people who want to be nurses, which is really great because we need those individuals. They can help us to make a difference in how healthcare is delivered here in the United States as it's beginning to transition from the acute care setting back into the community. That means we're going to need more people to be able to do that. And hopefully the future is that we have a very strong nursing workforce as well. Amen to that. Ernie, I'm certain there are nurses listening today that are thinking about breaking into leadership, and you've already given us so many wonderful pearls throughout our talk today. What's one piece of advice that you would give our listeners as they're thinking about pursuing a path to nursing leadership? The best piece of advice is for them to find themselves one or two mentors, people that they admire. When I'm speaking with students about this subject, I tell them, find someone within the nursing profession and then also find someone outside of the nursing profession and bounce ideas, questions, things like this off of both of those individuals and see what kind of response that you will get. People will see leadership skills in you that you do not necessarily see yourself right away. And in my case, it started out with my joining a committee at work. 
and being successful with that. But then I also did what my nursing instructors had set the pathway for me to do. And that was immediately upon graduation from my undergraduate program, I joined the State Nurses Association. And the reason I say that is that as a student, and I'm sure nurses who are listening today, they probably remember somewhere in their nursing courses, their instructors told them that you had to go to the local district or local chapter of the State Nurses Association and attend that meeting and report back what you saw or found, et cetera. And the same was true in my case, except in my case, my instructors were there. They were not there just taking the role of who's here and who's not. They were actively participating, getting up to the microphone, asking those tough questions, or they chaired committees. So they more or less showed us this is nursing in action. This is what you're supposed to do as a professional nurse. So it was a no-brainer that once I graduated that I would join the State Nurses Association and ANA. So I got asked to serve on a committee at the state level and was told that I did a great job with that. So the next thing I know, <laughs> got elevated to chair, and then they were asking me to serve on other committees. and. So I don't know if they were in desperate need of people to chair committees or if I really was doing a good job, but I could tell that I was doing good jobs because we were seeing the results of our work. I was chair of the membership committee at one point, and we had like a 15% increase in our membership under my tenure. And it's things like that that helps to mold you into a leader. But again, I think also as a leader, you need to have someone that you can bounce ideas off or have that mentor to lead you in the right direction or at least offer some advice to you. And all it takes is just taking that first step and asking, what can I do? I'm interested in becoming a leader. What can I do? And of course, the most important thing is getting involved because setting on the sideline is not leadership in action. <laughs> setting on the sideline will get you nowhere. But as a leader, even if it's just one little small thing, even just being a part of a committee, that still is embracing your leadership skills. You know, Maybe you're not ready to lead a committee or to do something, but you can certainly contribute. And then it starts from there. For some people, it's a fast track thing. For other people, it's a slow, progressive thing. But either way, you've taken the first step. That's what really counts. Such fantastic advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Grant. I really appreciate you sharing your journey and your leadership insights. And it's been such a pleasure to have you today. Well, thank you very much, Barbara. I've enjoyed being with you today, and I really uh, appreciate this opportunity. Serving as the president of the American Nurses Association has been a fulfillment of a lifelong dream for me. And while I never imagined in my wildest dreams that I'd be serving during a global pandemic, that only happened to one other president of a <laughs> She and I have something in common. I'm still excited to be able to have been in this position at this particular time and to make sure that members of the profession are very well taken care of. So I very much thank you for the opportunity to sit down and share a little bit of my journey with you and with your audience today. We thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed today's discussion, please subscribe to hear more Care to Lead podcasts, like us and send us your comments. Care to Lead is your path to success and is brought to you by the Vizient Nurse Executive Network. I'm Barbara Seymour. Have a great day.